I would ask you to turn with me to John chapter 8, where we'll be reading verses 12 through the end of the chapter through verse 59. Before reading, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, what comfort we derive from the hope of the gospel. May we never tire of hearing of it. When we hear um, reports such as this this evening from your sovereign and gracious work in the nation of Japan, a nation that has for so long been um, without the hope of the gospel, may we count it a great privilege and approach your word of truth with zeal and delight resting in your sovereign work of grace in our lives. It's in the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. John 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, 
a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If you were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Now, in this section of John's gospel, really from chapter 6 through chapter 8, John is drawing very heavily, very intentionally from what we call the Old Testament typology. In other words, he is helping us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament longing. Now, in our text tonight here in John chapter 8, I think the context finds Jesus here at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths a feast that Jesus went down to partake of and to participate of back in John chapter 7. Now, this particular feast falls on the Jewish calendar and annual succession was a week-long celebration, and it was the largest of all of the annual feasts that the Jewish people would celebrate. Some would travel great distances, hundreds of miles to participate in this week-long celebration. The city would swell with people, whether staying for the week inside of Jerusalem or outside. Many would construct makeshift booths that they would live in for the entire week. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths was a time to celebrate God's provision at the end of harvest season in the fall. But it was also a time of remembrance, 
a time to reflect upon God's deliverance and provision for their forefathers in the wilderness. Now, there were several significant things, as you know, that God did for his people during those years of wilderness wanderings. There was, of course, the provision of manna each day to sustain their life during that entire generation. Back in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says that he is the bread of life, the true provision of God from above. It's there in John 6, verse 49, that Jesus says, They, that is your forefathers, ate the manna in the wilderness, but they all still died. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In the wilderness, there was also the provision of water from the rock. In remembrance of that miraculous provision, during this feast, the priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam, walk up into the temple and pour the water upon the ground, thus reminding the people of the Lord's provision in giving that water to them to sustain their life. It was in John chapter 7 earlier in the feast that Jesus says there in verse 38, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so just as the manna was provisional and even though it sustained life for a time, all who ate of it died. In the same way, the water from the rock in the wilderness was provisional. It was temporary. All who drank of it certainly found satisfaction. Their thirst was quenched, but they all eventually died. And now Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of that sign as he himself is the true living water. But not only the provision of food and water during the wilderness years, but the Lord provided light by night and the pillar of cloud by day to guide the people in the way in which they should walk. At the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a celebration each night in which the four large candelabras measuring some 75 feet in height were lit, reminding the people of God's kindness to guide them. And these candles, these candelabras would be bright enough to be seen throughout the entire city of Jerusalem as the people looked up to that holy hill and saw the glowing light from a distance. And on the last night of the feast, one of the lanterns would not be lit, indicating that they were still a pilgrim people looking ahead to God's final work of deliverance. And so when Jesus says here in verse 12, I am the light of the world, He is claiming to be the fulfillment of that prophetic sign, that unlit light that is awaiting final illumination is fulfilled in the light of Christ Jesus himself. And so all of those significant events from of of old, Jesus claims to be the fulfillment. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Jesus is the water of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the people have been longing for. And all of this symbolism that would be before the people year after year, all of these types and shadows now find their fulfillment in Him. And so it's against this background of shadow now becoming reality that Jesus makes some very remarkable claims about Himself. And the claims that Jesus makes in this dialogue between himself and the Jewish people 
are claims that not only show us who He is, but reveal a great deal about our own need. They exalt, we could say, the greatness of Christ. They magnify His name while at the same time revealing the great need within the human heart. And so that's our focus tonight from this passage, the amazing claims of Jesus, which simultaneously reveal a great need within our hearts. Now first, notice in verse 12, again, the claim that Jesus makes about Himself, that He is the light of the world. And why do we need light? Because, of course, we are in darkness. He is light because we are in darkness. And now when Jesus says that He is light, those who are of original audience and us as well cannot help but think of the creation account in which God Himself spoke and brought light into existence. Light is needed in order for there to be life. And so light and life are intertwined with one another. Jesus' Jewish audience would also think, again, of course, at this setting of the Feast of Tabernacles, would think of the wilderness wanderings, the way in which the Lord provided in His goodness that light to guide the people. And that fire that appeared at night also reflected the Lord's holiness and purity. And so when Jesus says that He is the light of the world, He is saying that He Himself is spiritual light illuminating the darkness of our hearts, leading us from the darkness of our sin and rebellion into the light of His truth, that we might find life in Him alone. Now, John said this much earlier, back in chapter 1, in his prologue, you might recall, where he says, in Him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You might recall as well John chapter 3 and the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus as He is speaking with Nicodemus about the necessity of new birth. You'll remember that Nicodemus is perplexed. He just doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. And why does he not get the words that Jesus speaks so clearly to him? While these spiritual realities remain distant from him, he doesn't understand what Jesus says because he has yet to be born again, remaining in the darkness. John records in there in chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Or later in John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." And so, if Jesus is light, again, what does this say about us? Well, by nature, we are blind, living in the darkness. And left to ourselves, we will remain in the darkness, for as we read in John, we love the darkness. Nicodemus was a brilliant intellectual. He knew his Bible much better than you or I, but he was still in darkness. And he didn't remain in darkness because of some intellectual 
ability, intellectual weakness. But he remained there because of moral rebellion and because of hardness of heart. And he, along with the rest of us, will remain there until the Lord of light drives back the darkness within our hearts. This is where we would all be without the work of sovereign grace in our lives, in the darkness, in need of the light of Christ Himself. And the thing about spiritual darkness is that it's very deceptive because the one who is in darkness, the one who cannot see, is deluded into thinking that he can, that he can see just fine. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of a man who saved for months and months in order to buy his dream car. He went down one day to the dealership just to see if he could finally get the interest rate and the payment that he needed to purchase this car, still unsure if he could really afford it. But as he sat with his sales manager, he was amazed at the deal that he got on his slightly used BMW. He was so excited that he called his wife down to the dealership to see his new purchase. And as she came into the room where he was still wrapping up on some paperwork, he handed her the keys and he said, Honey, you've got to go see my car. It's just around the corner. It's the only green one over there. She came back a few moments later and she said to him, That can't possibly be it. There's only one car over there and it's pink. And he remembered at that moment that he was colorblind. It was a Mary Kay car. (laughs) He was so accustomed to viewing the world the wrong way that he thought that it was the right way. And so his wife got a new BMW. (laughs) The one who is in the darkness obviously cannot see, but is deluded into thinking that he can see. And because of this divide between the light of Jesus and the darkness of our hearts and the love that we have for that darkness, we see this hostility between Jesus and the Jews grow throughout this chapter. There's a defensiveness on their part and an anger toward Jesus as he reveals their true condition. And the hostility that's displayed on their part ought to be a frightening wake-up call to us as we consider the darkness within, a darkness that will remain until the light of Christ drives back that darkness. And it is a light that will prevail by sovereign grace. It is a light that cannot be overcome by darkness. Now, as God's people, we need to know this tendency of our own hearts to return to the darkness again and again. And so we need the illuminating work of our Savior. We need the ongoing light of God's Word to continue to reveal the darkness within so that His Word of truth would be revealing that darkness and driving us to see the need for our Savior over and over. We heard this morning, and I'll read again from Psalm 119, verse 105, where the psalmist writes, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so the more that we are drawing upon the truth of God's Word, the more that we are taking that light and shining it upon our path and learning to see with clarity is a work of grace that can happen only because of Him. And so that's the first thing that Jesus says about His identity and about our condition. I am light because you are in darkness. What else does Jesus say here in John chapter 8? 
about Himself and about our great need. We'll look down again to verse 21. He said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so what we learn here is that Jesus is spiritual life because we are spiritually dead. They don't see him. They fail to see their need for him and don't understand what he is talking about because they are dead in their sins. And a sign of spiritual death is you don't understand the glory and the greatness of Christ. They think that Jesus is talking about suicide there in verse 22, but nothing could be further from the truth. He is from the Father, and He only and always does the will of His Father. They are perfectly in line with one another. And so if they do not recognize Christ, it is indication that they do not know the Father. It is that perfect alignment of will between Father and Son that makes the testimony of Christ true. And here again, we are struck with the deceptive nature of our sin. Just as someone can be spiritually blind and yet think that he can see, so someone can be dead in their sins and not know it. And it might even look for a time as though there is spiritual life or spiritual vitality. You can think back to Luke chapter 8 from last Sunday morning and the parable of the soils. That among some, it may appear as though the word is taking root and growing But over time, the lack of lasting fruit reveals that the heart is still dead in sin. Or think of what John writes later in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 19, where he says that there were some who were among us, but they did not continue with us. They did not persevere in grace, for they were never truly of us. You see, the real test of spiritual life or death is this. How do you respond to Jesus? How do they respond to Jesus? Well, as he says in verse 24, there must be belief that he is who he says he is. Do you see your true condition for what it is? Do you embrace him by faith alone? Do you love him? Do you long to serve him? If not, if there is no love for him, if there is no lasting fruit, no lasting faith in keeping with repentance, then those are indicators that there is no spiritual life within. And you are still perhaps dead in your sins. These are the frightening words of Jesus. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 1 through 10, he writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love 
with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were dead, but now we have been made alive in Christ. And by grace, we walk in fellowship with him. And so Jesus is light because we are in darkness. Jesus is life because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And thirdly, we learn about our condition and about what Christ offers in verses 31 through 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so here we learn that Jesus offers freedom because we are in bondage, slaves to our sin and rebellion. And so with each of these three images, light because of darkness, life because of death, freedom because of slavery, those who get it still just don't understand. Those who are there listening just don't get what Jesus is saying. You can imagine Jesus speaking so clearly speaking so eloquently, speaking with such power and authority, and yet he's just met with this glazed-over look. As David said this morning, those who reject the Word just become harder and harder against that hope of the gospel. And we see that hardness progress throughout this chapter. His audience is defensive, proud, and arrogant, Their perplexity at his words first leads to indifference, but it's an indifference that grows into hatred toward Jesus, even though he speaks with words of life and hope. And this is the tragedy of our rebellion. Our Creator has done nothing but love us. Lord Jesus offers mercy and grace, and yet we are filled with such arrogance and pride that we have nothing but hatred toward God and hatred toward His authority and hatred toward His anointed. In Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist pleads with the nations to serve and worship the Lord, to bow before Him, to kiss the Son lest they remain under the wrath of the Lord. And yet in our bondage, we hate the very one who offers us freedom. They don't get it because they are enslaved, as Jesus says, to another master. They are held captive in their sin. In Romans 6, verse 12, we read, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 
In verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? We are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And the way that we respond to Jesus reveals which is true of us. And it is the unresponsive, indifferent, proud, and hateful response on the part of this Jewish audience that reveals their hardness of heart and reveals their enslavement to sin. While it's only the words of Jesus which can truly set free, they respond in verse 33, pointing to their heredity. It is their belief that their natural genealogy, the fact that they are literal offspring of Abraham, that that is what gives them peace with God. How dare you tell us, Jesus, that we are enslaved to sin? How dare you tell me that I am under the mastery of another? And here, that deceptive nature of sin rears its ugly head again. They are blind, but they think they can see. They are dead, but they think they have life. They are enslaved, but they think they are free. And the litmus test, if you will, of whether they are enslaved or free is seen in verses 39 and 40. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, you would be doing what Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. See, the evidence of your allegiance, again, is seen in the way that you respond to Jesus. Even Abraham longed to see the day of the anointed one. He listened to the words of promise that were given to him from on high. He looked with eyes of faith and was saved through the finished work of Jesus. They claim to be of that Abrahamic line of faith, and yet they live contrary to the example of Abraham. And the text, I believe, is pressing us as the reader to consider, do his words have impact upon you? Do you believe his word of truth? Is there clarity to the words of Jesus, or is there just confusion? Is there a passion to know Him, or is there only disinterest on your part? Do His words penetrate the darkness of your heart, showing that you, by yourself, are dead and enslaved to sin? Do His words continue as God's people to gradually make inroads into your heart, driving back that darkness and changing you from within? Because there are only two options here. When His word comes, your heart will either push back those words or those words of Jesus will push back the darkness and your response will be one of increased devotion to the Lord. Do you know Him as your Savior, not just as the Savior, but as your Savior. And so Jesus is light because we are in darkness. He is life because we are dead in our sins. He offers freedom because we are in bondage. And lastly, in verse 42, Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And here we learn that we need adoption because left to ourselves, we would be children of the devil. You see, things are actually much worse than we might like to admit. By nature, we are blind, we are slaves, we are dead, and we belong to the evil one. And here again, their response is to return to the belief that their natural lineage is sufficient to save them. We belong to Abraham. We are his offspring. That is what makes us a privileged people. We might think, well, how would we do something similar in our own lives? Well, it could be a similar fashion. I've grown up in the church. I've known these things my whole life. My parents have taught me. Who are you to tell me that I am dead in my sins and enslaved to the devil? And what the text, again, is doing is pressing you to consider, is there individual trust, an individual recognition of your need for Jesus? They rested upon their heritage. Are you perhaps doing the same, resting in the credentials of another because of your own heritage? Instead, there must be a personal, living, loving relationship toward the Lord through the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus' conversation with the crowd, it follows this pattern. This is who I am. This is your lost condition, and this is the fruit in your life if you get that. I am light because you are in darkness. I am life because you are dead. I am offering freedom because you are enslaved. I offer you the hope of adoption because you belong to the devil. And the true marks of believing, the true marks of being a child of God are this. The true evidence of getting this is a love for Jesus. And it's a love that has a very tangible expression, belief, belief in Jesus' identity and his work, listening, listening to his word, for his words are life itself, trusting, trusting in his substitutionary atoning work, obeying. Obeying the words that are spoken to me in Scripture. And the calling of this text is really twofold. Heed the warning of judgment. Walk in faithful obedience. Now, we didn't quite get this far, but look down to verse 59. After Jesus makes this ultimate claim of divinity claiming to be the great I am, the God who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, we see their ultimate response of hatred toward Jesus as they pick up stones to throw them at him. And Jesus responds by removing himself from their presence. This is a sure sign of judgment for their rejection of him. 
It is possible to hear these amazing words of truth and life from the lips of our Savior and yet fail to see your need. It's possible to see Him to a degree and yet fail to truly hear Him. And there's that deceptive nature of sin. You think you can see when you are blind. You think that you're free when you are enslaved. You think that you have life when you are dead. You think that you belong to God when you belong to the evil one. The tragedy of the text is those who stubbornly resist Jesus and remain in darkness. And yet there is hope for those of us who are truly in Christ Jesus. There is hope and there is comfort for us. It is the Lord who gives us spiritual light. It is He who gives us life. It is He who gives us freedom. It is He who brings us into the family of God. And these are not things that we need to speculate about or rely upon our feelings to determine whether they are true or false. But these are promises that we derive from God's Word. Truths that we need to sink deep down into our hearts. If you are His, then you will love Him. If you love Him, And that love will be made evident in your life, following Him, obeying Him, and trusting Him. By His grace, may we be a people who always see our need for Christ Jesus. May our response be one of great love for Christ, made evident in a desire to serve Him, to know Him, to obey Him, to trust Him to believe Him, all for His glory. Will you pray with me? Our Lord, may we leave this night filled with hope, with trust, and with confidence because of Your sovereign work of grace in our lives. May we long to always heed the call to faithful uh, Christian living, to obedience, to a desire to persevere all of the days that you are pleased to give us life. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.